Do you love our worship team? <laughs> I know I do, and I just praise God for the chance to worship Him in such an amazing environment as we just experienced together. So it's good to see you this morning, church. You know, um, this last week, I went into Publix for one of those just real quick runs. I needed to get some eggs. We were out, and I, I was going down the pickle aisle on my way to the eggs, and if you're a Publix shopper, you're trained, your eyes can recognize a BOGO. You know, out of the corner of your eye, you buy one, get one. And I was kind of moving along, and I saw one, and I said, wow, okay, this is interesting. It's pickles, and they're on buy one, get one free, and I, my girls love pickles. And so there's four girls in my household, and they love these. And I've actually gotten in trouble in the past for bringing home the wrong brand of pickles. You don't want to make that mistake. But my, my very discerning family will eat Vlastic pickles, and I knew that. And so I go, okay, it's the right brand. It's a BOGO. At this point, I'm interested. So I grabbed a couple of these, and then I continued on my way, and then I stopped. And I thought, wait a minute, I'm going to be right back here doing the same thing again in a couple of weeks. And I've got an opportunity to get more of these at a great price. So I grab a couple more and put them in my cart. And then I have that moment of hesitation, and now I'm weighing the slight shame of having too many pickles in my cart if I go all in versus the savings on my annual pickle budget that I'm, that I'm really excited about. And I'm like, no, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm gonna, I'm, I don't know what the quantity limit is, but I'm just going to get in on some pickles. But it's not just the, the dill. We've got to get the chips, too, because we have hamburgers sometimes in our household. So I really load up like this. And then I continued on my way. And actually, I did get kind of heckled by another shopper for the pickles in my cart. And, and when I was checking out, the cashier said, you know, I've never had this many pickles bought by one person in my Publix career before. But I didn't mind that shame because I knew what I was doing. I was, I was like, yeah, I'm all in for this BOGO. This is a great deal, and I'm excited about it. You know, our nation has a strategic petroleum reserve. We call it the SPR well, now my family has an SPR of our own. It's our strategic pickle reserve. And I think it, we're good for a couple months on pickles. Um, although I said that when my kids watched the 5 o'clock service last night, and they said, no, Dad, we'll eat those in a week or two. So I don't know. We'll see what happens with the pickles. But we're continuing this week in our series on transitions. And as you may have guessed from that story, the transition we're looking at this week is from interested to all in. We start out with some level of interest in Jesus, and the question is, will we go completely all in for him? And when I think about this transition, I think about a man named Nabil Qureshi. We're going to put his picture up on the screen, and I'm curious, who's familiar with the story of Nabil Qureshi? People around the room, I see at least a couple, a couple more, um, but mostly not. And this is an amazing man of God. But Nabil was actually raised by, as a Muslim apologist by parents who were teachers and preachers of Islam, and he was trained up in this from an early age. By age five, he had memorized large sections of the Quran in Arabic. He was trained to defeat Christians in debate, and he tells stories about how in his testimony, even in elementary school or middle school, if someone would reach out and say, hey, why don't you come to church with me, or have you heard about Jesus? He would pounce at that and say, oh, let me tell you about Jesus. The documents you read in the Christian church, your New Testament is corrupted. You can't trust it. And he would just go on the attack and scare Christians away. And this continued in his life until he got into college, and he did this with a friend he had met named David, except David wasn't intimidated by this. He said, wow, Nabil, you're asking really good questions about the Christian faith. Would you be open to exploring some of that together? And Nabil said, sure, yeah, we can pursue the truth, and I'm going to convince you that I'm right. And they spent about a year, 
They were theological opponents, but they had become personal friends, and they were digging into the manuscript history of the New Testament documents. And after looking at this for a year, Nabil said, David, I will admit to you, the Christian New Testament appears to be reliable. You can trace the document history, the manuscript evidence, all the way back close to the original writing time. And I believe that these documents are real and legitimate. And therefore, now he wasn't an enemy of the Christian faith. He was at least a little bit interested. But there were a couple more barriers for him to overcome, and this friendship took three to four years to play out as he was looking at Christianity with an open heart. The next step was, well, Jesus never really claimed to be God, right? And they study that for a while, and Nabil says, okay, Jesus did claim to be God. And then the final step is Muslims are taught that Jesus was never crucified, and in fact, of course, he never rose from the dead. And as Nabil looked at the evidence, both in the church and outside the church, what have even secular scholars say? He came to a point where David said, Nabil, how do you feel about Christianity as of today? Again, this is three or four years of studying it. Nabil says, David, I'm 85% sure, intellectually speaking, that Jesus is the Son of God and He died and He rose again. But I'm wrestling with what would this mean for my life and my family and my journey if I were to go all in and make that kind of a commitment. Nabil ended up making that commitment. And you can find his testimony and hear it online. You can imagine the drama and the difficulty and the challenges that came in his family and in his journey as he made that profession of faith in Jesus. But at this time, he was finishing up medical school, and instead of going out to become a doctor and practice medicine, he felt the call of God to become an apologist for the Christian faith. And over the course of the ensuing years, he reached millions of people through the books he wrote and through sharing his story, and God was glorified through his life, reaching thousands and thousands of people who came to Jesus out of his ministry. Nabil was diagnosed, sadly, with stomach cancer at age 33, and very quickly he had passed away by age 34. And yet he glorified God all the way to the end of his life and testified to the goodness of our Savior. And so today, with that story in mind, we're going to look at the story of another religiously devoted man who is committed to the truth and yet came face to face with, with Jesus and had his perspective challenged by Jesus. And maybe as you're with us today in this room or with us online, you're someone who loves the truth and is interested in learning the truth, but you're not 100% sure about Jesus yet, and this is going to be the perfect message and scripture to dig into for you, and I invite you to do that with us. So if you're able, would you stand with me as we read the Word of God out of John chapter 3 to hear the story of Nicodemus. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, 
We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Join me in prayer. Jesus, this morning we come to you like Nicodemus. We confess to you, Jesus, you do great things. We've seen you at work in the world, but none of us here today fully understands everything you would have us understand about your kingdom. But we're eager and we're hungry, so would you teach us and open our eyes today? Lord Jesus, would you let me faithfully proclaim your word and your gospel this morning as we worship you together? It's in your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So, you know, this passage comes right before John 3.16, that most famous verse in the Bible. And so, so often we don't pay a lot of attention to the details of this conversation, but there's so much here to learn about the life of Nicodemus. So I want to answer two questions today that will help us understand and then find application for our own lives. And those are, first of all, who is Nicodemus? And then second of all, what in the world was that conversation about that we just read? If it's a little bit confusing, we're going to get into the details of what they said together. But first of all, who's Nicodemus? And to answer this question, I want you to imagine your, fa- your favorite famous Christian leader, someone who's just theologically solid, has written books, someone like John Piper or Vody Bauckham or Randy Alcorn. And then imagine someone like this runs for the United States Senate and wins the race. And you go, oh my goodness, this person has amazing political authority and they have amazing theological authority at the same time. That is Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee, so he was a teacher of the law, and he was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the 71 men who ruled over the people of Israel. So he's got political and theological authority as he comes to Jesus. And the thing is, the Sanhedrin and the rulers of Israel were starting to turn against Jesus at this point in the journey in the Gospel of John. And so as we look at Nicodemus making his approach, we see, does he come to fuss at Jesus and run him out of town? And the answer is no. Does he come like some others did in the Gospels, you know, in public to try and trip up Jesus with a trick question and and embarrass him? And the answer is no. Nicodemus comes with an open and willing heart and in great respect. He comes at night. These These are both famous men. He comes at night so they can have a private conversation and he can just hear and ask questions of Jesus. Nicodemus knows that to listen and follow after Jesus would be suicidal from a career and reputation standpoint. And yet he's willing to take that risk in pursuit of the truth, even if it's going to hurt. Just like Nabil Qureshi, and the question is, are we open to that this morning as well, to pursue the truth, even if it's going to be uncomfortable in our life or in our journey? You can actually trace Nicodemus through the Gospel of John. It's amazing to watch the progression. He shows up three times that I want to touch on. First of all, we just read chapter 3 when he's seeking after answers. But then he shows up again in chapter 7 with this growing faith. Jesus has just made a public scene by calling people unto himself as the Messiah, as the Savior. And the leaders are ready to go after Jesus. But Nicodemus speaks up in defense of Jesus. And he gets slammed and and put down by his colleagues who are also the rulers of Israel. But he doesn't mind in his growing faith and devotion. He's willing to take a hit for Jesus. And then in chapter 19, we see him go all in for the Lord. In that chapter, Nicodemus helps another Sanhedrin member 
Joseph of Arimathea, to honor and bury Jesus after his death. And to understand this, I want us to imagine the journey that these guys went on. So we we see how Nicodemus' journey starts. We know that Joseph of Arimathea is another secret disciple. And so they're on the Sanhedrin who is opposed to Jesus. You can imagine Nick and Joseph getting together late at night to discuss, have you heard the latest on what Jesus was teaching last week? Did you hear about that miracle that he did, the latest? And they have decided together he is truly the Messiah. He's he's come from God. We're going to follow him with our lives. And then if you fast forward a couple of years, they wake up one Friday morning and they hear the news that Jesus had been hauled in front of Caiaphas, the high priest, and then taken to Pontius Pilate. And the rumor was he was going to be crucified by the Romans. And as Nicodemus sits down and begins to cry, thinking about what's going to happen to his Savior, he remembers what Jesus said. He said, Nicodemus, the son of man, will be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness so that whoever believes can have eternal life. You can imagine him running over to Joseph's house and saying, hey, Jesus is going to die. He prophesied this. He said it was coming, but how can we serve him and honor him even now? And you can read about this in John chapter 19. But Joseph of Arimathea says, look, I'm going to go talk to Pontius Pilate, the governor, and ask for the body of Jesus. Which, by the way, imagine the huge favor that is. This is a crucified criminal in the eyes of the Romans. He's the governor of the state. And yet Joseph has access to him and he gives Joseph the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus says, well, you go talk to Pontius Pilate. I'm going to go get burial spices so we can honor Jesus and properly bury him. Because, Joseph, you've got this tomb. I can get the materials. Let's meet up again and do this together. So Nicodemus goes home and he gathers his treasure and goes out and buys a a ridiculously extravagant amount of burial spices and materials, 75 pounds as recorded in John 19. And commentators will report to us that the value of all of this was probably over $100,000 in today's money. So this was no ordinary burial. They were burying Jesus like the King and Messiah that they believed him to be. And if you think about this, this is before the resurrection. So the faith that they expressed for the crucified Jesus, they said, you are the Lord. Even after your crucifixion, before the resurrection, they were all in for him. So this is an amazing level of devotion. They're risking their lives for Jesus. But if we zoom back the clock, we say, what changed for Nicodemus? It all stems to this conversation in John chapter 3. And so somehow what Jesus said in that chat that we just read changed Nicodemus' heart and life in a profound and deep way. But if we're honest in reading it, it's a super confusing conversation. We read right through that and go, I don't really know what these guys are saying to each other. And that's because we're not experts in the same way that they are in the mindset and theology of a first century Jewish leader. So, you know, I like to think of myself as an expert in many different areas of life. Um, Like many of us, I love to read, I love to learn, I love to build my expertise. But then sometimes there's an area of life where you have to just admit, like, okay, I just don't have it. I'm not there. And one of those areas for me is interior design. So I uh, I was with my wife and a realtor, and we were in a home one time, and I looked up at the ceiling, and I was like, guys, check it out. This ceiling is really interesting. They've done something unique, and... It's got like wooden slats up there, and and I think it, what do you think about that? And they kind of started chuckling and looked at me, they're like, it's shiplap. I'm like, oh, I've heard of that. Yeah, that's like a famous thing, right? They're like, yes, it is. Uh, But then I'm looking at it, and I go, wait a minute, there's a problem. They didn't insulate the cracks in the boards very well. The the heating and cooling bills are going to be a problem. And they kind of chuckle some more and say, no, no, 
that's not the ceiling. The shiplap is fixed onto the ceiling. That's how this works. Well, I'm a frugal engineer, and so at this point, I'm like, no, I don't understand. You're telling me they had a perfectly functional ceiling, and then they spent money on boards of wood that they like glued up there or nailed up there just to make it look a little bit better, and they're like, for the third time, yes, this is shiplap. Get with the program. And so what for them was two seconds to say, nice shiplap, was for me a three-minute explanation because I didn't understand. I didn't have the background. It's kind of like if you're in the hospital, right? And two doctors are talking about you, and they decide in about 12 seconds what to do. And then one of them walks away, and the other one comes over and explains to you in five minutes what they just decided in 12 seconds. Well, why is that? It's because they're experts. They know their field. They know what they're doing. They're using technical language. But then they come, and they want you to fully understand what they have just decided together. That's exactly what is happening here in John chapter 3. When Jesus and Nicodemus are talking, these are men at the top of their field, having a passionate theological discussion about the truth. And every phrase and word they use is loaded with meaning. And so we have to dive in and try to understand their conversation or it'll just flow right past us and we'll miss it. And so I want to call out three things this morning that we can apply to our lives that Jesus is teaching Nicodemus in John 3. And number one is this, a redefined kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And this is an unexpected answer, right? Nicodemus says, Jesus, you've come from God. You do these amazing things. And Jesus says, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom. And we're like, how, how does that answer the question Nicodemus has even just asked? Well, we need to go back and do a little bit of history to understand that context. Between Malachi, which is the last book of your Old Testament, and Matthew, which is the first book of your New Testament, there's about 400 years of history that unfolded, and some of it is relevant for us here. A little over 100 years before Jesus, the Jewish people were under the iron fist, not of Roman rule, but of Greek rule. You see, Alexander the Great, who we've all heard of his famous empire, after he died, it was split into four pieces, and the Jewish people were under the rule of one of those wings of the Greek empire, and in that context, a ruler named Antiochus IV set out to crush and demoralize the people of God. And one of the things he did was to conduct pagan sacrifices of pigs inside the holy temple of God. And you can imagine how, how revolting this would be to God's people. And at one point, a Jewish freedom fighter ran in and killed the priest offering a false pagan sacrifice, tore down the idolatrous altar, and rallied the people of God to fight against the oppressors. And you know how these stories typically end, right? Well, the, the empire gets annoyed, they pull together a couple thousand troops, they kill all the rebels, and everyone goes home. Except amazingly, and miraculously, in this case, that is not what happened. And this became known as the Maccabean Revolt, and through this, the Jewish people actually won a measure of independence. And as all of this played out, one of the Jewish leaders was elevated to the status of ruler, and he was given three titles— these titles were high priest, ruler of the Jews, and commander of the army. He was given all this authority, and he was considered to be a Messiah-like figure. You can read about Simon here in, in the book of 1 Maccabees, chapter 14. You won't find that book in your Bible. It's not part of the Christian canon of Scripture, but the church through the centuries has considered it to be a relevant historical document for us to look at and learn from. And, and Simon is considered this fulfillment of the prophets by the Jewish people. 
And yet, ironically enough, as they threw off their Greek overlords, the new Jewish leaders aligned themselves with a little empire that happened to be growing in power called Rome. And then before you know it, Rome is the new oppressor of the people of God. And so there they sat, waiting for deliverance and waiting for a Messiah to rescue them. And so when Jesus came along, uh, one thing that no one expected was for the Messiah to, instead of overthrowing Rome, to be someone who redefines the kingdom of God about their spiritual response to who he is. And even for people who are teachers and preachers over Israel to potentially be outside the kingdom or family of God based on how they react to that Messiah. So Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, thank you for acknowledging that I've come from God. You are correct. I have. I'm bringing his kingdom. But that kingdom is not like the Maccabean revolt. I'm not going to command any armies. I'm not going to overthrow Rome like you guys overthrew Greece over a century ago. My kingdom is spiritual. And even you, Nicodemus, you're not in just because you're a teacher of the law. Even you have to be born again. And that will happen if you look to the one who is lifted up on the cross and believe in him. And you can imagine that Nicodemus is in shock in this conversation, but he doesn't get offended, he doesn't leave, he keeps asking questions of Jesus because he continues to want to understand. And for you and I, this becomes relevant as we think about our lives because what it means is there's no such thing as Christianity as a a demographic category. You're not a Christian because you're born to Christian parents. There's no such thing as as just an inheritance of the Christian faith. It's about your relationship with Jesus. Maybe there have been five generations of Christians before you. Maybe your parents work at Northland or Wycliffe or Crewe or somewhere like that. But when God the Father looks at your life, he doesn't ask your parents whether you bow the knee to his son Jesus. He asks you and he looks at your heart. It's between you and Jesus. And if you're listening to this sermon today, you at least have some interest. The Spirit of God is stirring you in some way. And the question is, would you respond like Nicodemus before you and like Nabil Qureshi before you and make that full, unconditional surrender to the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ? So that's number one. The kingdom is redefined and it's all about Jesus. Number two is about the new birth that Jesus offers. So as they talk, Jesus says, you've got to be born again. Nicodemus says, Jesus, how do I do that? What does that look like? Can you please clarify? And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water, of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And in this statement, Jesus is making an allusion. You see, Nicodemus knew the law and the prophets like the back of his hand. His life was spent teaching the Old Testament. And so there's a place where we can find water and spirit and flesh, the elements of this conversation that Nicodemus would have immediately thought of. He may have gone straight to his scrolls after talking with Jesus to look this up in Ezekiel chapter 36. One of the high points of the great prophet Ezekiel. And Jesus is saying that prophecy is happening now. I want to read you this text and look for these words that Jesus used. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. You may hear the phrase, born-again Christian. And you may say, well, what does that mean? Are you a born-again Christian? What is that precisely? Well, it's right here in John chapter 3. Referencing back to Ezekiel chapter 36, 
Jesus says there are three things, if we are born again, that are true of us as we follow the Messiah. We're going to put these on the screen, and I want to invite you to repeat these after me. We are cleaned, we are filled, and we have a new heart. And if we think about this, this is the gospel. We are cleaned, filled, and given a new heart. And if you think about our status before we have Jesus, we are dirty from our sin. We're isolated from God. And we can't clean ourselves up or straighten our lives out morally no matter how hard we try. But Jesus cleans our dirtiness of sin, fills us with the Spirit of God so we have fellowship and unity with God, and then gives us a brand new heart that actually wants to obey the good commands of Scripture and live a holy life. And that is the good news of the gospel. Do you have it this morning? Jesus says you can't see it. It's not physically visible like going into your mom and being born again. No, Nicodemus, it's a spiritual rebirth by the Spirit of God, a new heart within you. And by the way, this concept of the dirtiness of our sin and being washed by the water that Jesus Christ offers us. You know, our culture has wandered so far from a truthful or biblical worldview. And especially if you're a teenager today, if you're into your 20s today, and you're in the generation that that is having to live in the middle of this cultural revolution that is running far away from the truth of God, this is a challenge to overcome. But God's word can guide you in it. But you see, the highest values of today's culture are self-love and self-acceptance. And those sound like positive things, and and in a way they can be, but when those are the highest value of a culture, there's no room for a concept of sin or the brokenness that exists inside of us. And so that pernicious lie will destroy those who hold on to it. This sounds familiar, right? All you have to do is find your own truth, live it, and learn to accept yourself for who you are. But the truth of the gospel says it's not just about accepting us in the state we're in because we are broken and fallen and dirty and it is before the majesty of a holy God we can only be made clean by the gift that he has given through his son, Jesus Christ. And that's the redemption offered in the gospel. So one is a new kingdom. It's all about Jesus. Two is a new birth and he can redeem us in the way we've just described. And three is an unflinching authority. When Jesus talks to Nicodemus, there is this not backing down for a moment, unflinching authority. I want to give you the hand gestures that Jesus probably used in this moment, in these couple of verses. Jesus answered him, are you, Nicodemus, the teacher of the law, and yet you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. And if you think about this, Jesus is correcting and admonishing Nicodemus. Remember, this is like John Piper as a U.S. senator. This is the the leader of the leaders of Israel. You don't correct their theology unless you are God himself come in human flesh. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, I have come from God. I am the Messiah. Salvation is only available through me. It's an amazing moment. And can you imagine that Nicodemus needed some time to process this? He walks away from the conversation. It's late. It's dark. His head is spinning and his heart is pounding. And he's saying, "I, I really think I believe what Jesus was just telling me. But this changes everything. This changes my whole life if I go all in with him. This changes the entire faith that we practice. It's all redefined around Jesus. What will it mean for me to go all in? 
And if that's you in this moment and you're saying, what would it mean for my life if I went all in and embraced the truths of Jesus? I believe Paul the Apostle would come along if he had written the book of Romans and he could be there with Nicodemus at this time. He would have read him a few verses to encourage him and to encourage you this morning. If you're thinking about that leap to go all in out of Romans chapter 8, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And the fact that you're here, that Jesus has called you to this moment to even hear this sermon shows that you've been led by the Spirit to become a son or daughter of God right now. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You see, you and I are descended from the sinful state of Adam and Eve. And in our natural place, we cannot get into the family of God. We are cast out. But now there's an unflinching authority who says you can be brought in by the work of Jesus on the cross. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul would say, hey, Nicodemus. And he says, hey, Northland Church, as you're thinking about this journey, the road won't be easy, but you've got an inheritance from God himself. And you may not even see much of that prize in this life. Your road may be filled with dark nights like Pastor Josh taught us on even last week. But you've already laid hold of the eternal life that Jesus won for you. And we praise God for that work in our journey. So as we move towards the end, I want to share a little story with you all. You know, about three years ago, God began to call me and my wife, Megan, into the foster care journey. And then two and a half years ago, after we were certified and said yes to a case, a social worker came across the threshold of our home, carrying two car seats, each with a little five-pound baby inside, and gave us a plastic bag full of diapers and formula and said, good luck. And just like that, the state of Florida handed us two little lives, abandoned at the hospital, but never abandoned by God. Many of you have been praying with our family through the last two and a half years for God's will to be done in our foster case. I know there's other families here with us in the Northland community who are doing foster care, and God is with you in that journey, but it's so difficult. You don't know the outcome, and you don't even know what the outcome should be. All you can pray is, Lord, your will be done. We're here to serve it through the dark nights, but Lord, your will be done. And we've seen miracle after miracle. In fact, Northland made a video of our family about a year ago, and we've got a couple pictures of that. And what you'll notice is in the whole video and in these pictures, you can't see the kids' faces. Why is that? Well, because foster children are not legally part of your family. So you don't have the right to show their face to the world. There's a legal line of separation between them and and a natural-born child. Well, exactly one month ago to the day, as of today, in the courtroom down on 2000 East Michigan Street in Orlando, my wife and I took the witness stand before a judge, gave our statements from an attorney asking us questions, and then the judge signed an order. And so now I'm really proud to be able to show you my son and my daughter and their faces. We praise God. We praise God. God for what he has done. This is Chance James Cortinas and Callie Grace Cortinas, and they are a grace in our lives. And that's now my son and my daughter forever and irrevocably in my family. 
We have a picture of the courtroom too. It was awesome. And uh, the judge had tears in her eyes. The, uh, the, this picture was taken by the sheriff, gun on his hip. He was standing up on the chair to get the picture for us with tears in his eyes. It was just a beautiful moment. And by the way, the day after this happened, one day after this picture was taken, my wife got a text from the agency and they said, hey, can you guys take in a newborn baby? <laughs> so y'all, when they text the family who has five total children who just adopted twins the day before, you know they are desperate. And in fact, this week, my wife has gotten more texts saying, Miss Megan, we have newborns. We have a five-year-old boy. Are you guys ready to take someone into your house? Y'all, our bedrooms are full, our house is full, but they're desperate and there are children in need. And I want to just give the invitation this morning, if you want to be a part of, of driving towards solutions for this as the body of Christ, we're going to put an email address up on the screen because here in our church at Northland, there's a ministry with the heart to say, we as Christ's church has done for centuries and centuries, we are part of serving children in need who are made in the image of God and giving them the love that they are worthy of. And so that's welcome185 at northlandchurch.net and that's going to forward the email right along to this ministry and connect you. And that's whether you can take in a child yourself or whether you would just say, I want to help. I, I don't think I'm in a place or a stage to take in a child, but I can pray, I can make meals, I can support in some way. You can join in that group. And guys, somebody step up, because if not, my wife's going to say yes to one of these, and, and y'all, I'm tired. I am tired. I got home from the 5 o'clock service last night. Just to give you a little window into two-year-old twins, uh, I got home last night, I went to the front door, and I cracked it open, and as soon as that door was cracked, two-year-old chance, boom, he goes out the door, and he was naked as a jaybird, and he is going, and the wind is blowing through his hair and everything else as he feels the freedom, and so he's running out there, I turn around to catch him, and then the dog gets out, our dog is in a confrontation with the neighbor's dogs. I'm wrangling up Mr. Chance, and I've got him. So it takes us two or three minutes to get back inside, and then our seven-year-old Anna is saying, Callie's in the chocolate! And uh, so you might say, don't you lock all that stuff up? And the answer is, yes, we do. Little genius Callie knows how to unlock them, so we've got to beef up our security. But she's covered in chocolate. It's everywhere. So that is our life with twins. So somebody else step in. I don't think it's a, it's a place. No more babies right now. We're not able to do it. The rooms are full, but as a church, we can do it together. You know, this biblical truth of adoption hit me in a new way when I was reviewing the legal papers for our adoption. So check out what happens to a child on the day that they are adopted. Number one, the child receives a new name. Their identity is changed. Number two, the child receives a new birth certificate from the state of Florida. Their past is wiped away. And number three, there are full rights of inheritance and estate equivalent to a natural-born child within wedlock. And so there's a secure and permanent family status. This right here is a copy of the final adoption order. It's a piece of paper signed by the judge, filed and delivered to the state of Florida, and it is finished. And isn't that what we have in Jesus? The title of this document is Final Judgment of Adoption. And if you are in Jesus Christ, if you've made that commitment to him, the king and judge of the universe has signed his name to a decree over your life. And when you stand before him on the final day, it will say final judgment of adoption because you are in the family of God.
And so as we close out today, I want to invite you to consider where you are in your Nicodemus journey this morning. Maybe you're back in John chapter 3. You're interested in Jesus. You've seen good things happen by the hands of Jesus in other people's lives. But you're wondering, what would it mean to go all in? And I just want to invite you today to be born again. Jesus speaks to you with grace and gentleness, but don't miss his unflinching authority. He is who he claims to be. He doesn't back down from that authority. And just like he gave a black and white choice to Nicodemus and to Nabil Qureshi, he looks into your life and he says, will you bow the knee and become part of my family? And I would invite you to that choice today. Some of you may be in chapter 7. You've accepted Jesus. You're walking in a faith journey with him. But the people around you in your work or school or community may not know that about you. You're a secret disciple. And are you willing to be noticed for your faith in Jesus and to go more public with it in a culture that is increasingly hostile and opposed to the Christian faith? You know, if I was willing to be publicly shamed for my Vlasic pickles because I was going to save some money at Publix, how much more should I and we be willing to be public with the truth of the gospel and a biblical worldview in a difficult context and environment? And some of us may be already all in. You're in John 19 in your Nicodemus journey. You're gathering your treasure. You're collecting your life and you're pouring yourself out for the glory of God. And if you think about what Nicodemus got to do, it was a once in the history of the world opportunity. He literally stewarded and cared for the body of Christ, the physical body that had been crucified. And he poured out an extravagant service to the body of Christ to prepare him for burial before the resurrection. We don't have that privilege, but we have something very similar because we are part of what Jesus says is the body of Christ, even right here at Northland. And so as we pray and give and serve and volunteer and love one another in this community, we are following the example of Nicodemus to bless the body of Christ. And so I want you to again invite God to bring you along in your journey to the next step as we worship together through this final song. Thank you, church family. Let's sing together.